Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about the zone of interest. Joining me today, first, it's uh, one of our uh, World War II and World War I correspondents. It's Fred Cobb. Fred, how's it going? I'm doing great. I was really curious if you were going to make some sort of joke for my intro, but then I uh, realized eh, maybe not uh, the right time to do it for this uh, movie that we're covering today. Yeah, you know, I'm not saying that couldn't be done, but I just don't know if I had the time to think through one that was like well executed enough to justify it for a movie of this subject matter. Uh, also joining us today, it's Elijah. It's Elijah Howard. Elijah, how's it going? Doing good. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So The Zone of Interest is the newest film from uh, uh, British uh, writer-director Jonathan Glazer. It's his first since 2013's Under the Skin. The Zone of Interest is, so it's a it's a British film, but it's, it's exclusively in German. So it got obviously got nominated not only for Best Picture, but also uh, Best International Feature at the Oscars because it you know meets those requirements, I suppose. And uh, yeah, it, it, it tells the story of uh, one uh, Rudolf Haas, who, uh, you know, I, you know, guys, I, one thing I didn't realize as I was like, kind of like going back and reading about the movie and stuff like that was like, because I knew the conceit going in, I didn't realize that like they're actually in theory is kind of a reveal at some point as to the nature of this guy's job. I was just kind of like went in with all the knowledge. I wasn't really thinking about how the way in which it slowly parceled out the information, but you know, it kind of depicts Rudolph and his family as like these, um, as these folks just like, you know, enjoying a, enjoying a, a, a nice afternoon out by the lake and they go back to their house and he's, you know, they're just a family with five kids and they're living their life. But I mean, it soon becomes apparent that, oh, no, he actually uh, Rudolph actually works at Auschwitz. Rudolph is Rudolph Haas, who is uh, actually based on the real commandant of the Auschwitz concentration camp. And uh, Jonathan Glazer has decided to focus this film on uh being basically solely from the perspective of this family and never actually firsthand showing the atrocities that took place at Auschwitz, which was the most deadliest, the deadliest concentration camp uh, uh, constructed by the Nazis. And, uh, and Haas himself was, a, was a, a massive part of that. He ran it for three years longer than anyone else and, and across two stints, the last of which was, you know, kind of for uh, to, to come back, which is a big plot point in this movie. He has to go away and his wife, uh, Hedwig, played by uh, Sandra Huer. And we should say that uh, Rudolph is played by uh, Christian Verdell, but uh, she loves she loves it there. Loves the life they built for their family in this uh, nice house and on the countryside. And they, you know, it's a, it's a lot about how they're able to compartmentalize and you know not really focus on the atrocities of their day to day life. But uh, he has to, he gets transferred away, and that's a big point of contention. But then comes back because he he got tapped to like lead this massive purge of Hungarian Jews toward during the home stretch of. Uh, World War II. And it's, we'll get into all the different, like, you know, unique filmmaking flourishes and stuff about how this is made. And, uh, but I mean, guys, it's just such a, it's such a unique movie and how it approaches the subject matter. So I'm sure you knew a little bit about the conceit going in, Elijah, but first, what was just like your, your big initial reaction and to how you responded to this movie? Um, yeah, I think it's, it's hard because there, you know, talk about this a lot, uh, you know, kind of the expectations that come with uh, that come with certain directors, certain bodies of work, things like that, um, and certain source material. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and so it's kind of hard to divorce all that from, you know, looking at this film at the outset. Uh, Jonathan Glazer, a director who is phenomenally talented and who has done precious little uh, in the way of feature work. Um, this is his fourth film uh in 20 23 years 
which should you know tell you all you need to know about uh, his level of prolificness but um you know it's been it's been 10 years since under the skin which was his last film sci-fi film that i think nowadays is generally kind of you know has has come up in regard it's sort of one of those movies that i think you know when it was released uh was very lightly regarded you know indie circles kind of loved it but it didn't really get a lot of recognition and then and then i think it became one of those like you know one of those like buzzfeed list movies where it's like crazy sci-fi films from the last 10 years that you definitely haven't seen kind of thing mm-hmm. um and I, you know for better or for worse i think it has made it a more recognized film and i think it's very deserving because it is uh like this movie extremely uh formally challenging and very uh directorially unique um it's a movie that uh is was was done using uh like hidden cameras and like guerrilla cinema you know cinematography and uh you know that was shot in, in all these ways that make a lot of sense when you watch the movie but just kind of on conceit don't necessarily aren't, aren't things you would normally associate with sci-fi thriller right um so coming into this movie you know you hear okay Jonathan Glazer is going to be directing a holocaust film you think of under the skin you have to recognize it's not going to be whatever it is that you might expect there is going to be some sort of some sort of subversion. Um, Don't go in expecting Shinor's list when you hear that. I ex- exactly. And, and you know, we can talk about this later, but it was certainly interesting hearing the, you know, what the the book that was going to be adapted, um, you know, Zone of Interest, which uh, by Martin Amos, Amos which yeah. Amos, which I, um, I did not read. I read, you know, a little part of sort of when it came out. It came out fairly recently, all things considered, uh, like 2014, so about about 10 years ago now uh, you know com- compared to some of his other you know to some of the other source materials that he's worked from and things like that but um i i read some of it i think maybe back in college um and it, it's just interesting because it's very it was very different from what ended up on screen and so you know watching the trailer reading knowing a little bit about the book you kind of get a sense of there's there's something happening here that's not exactly what one might expect and i think that's in a way was the point you know you ask about sort of my reaction to the film mm-hmm. you know there's there's definitely a very uh, <laughs> a very significant uh, guttural you know a, a visceral reaction to the way uh, you know, the things are portrayed, but I also couldn't help but most of the time just be kind of amazed at how much Glazer was able to pull off with a, a style and an execution that was very, very different from mm. what you might expect. Yeah, I yeah, I appreciate you coming at it from that perspective. I'm not as, I, I, I've seen Under the Skin, I hadn't seen uh, Jonathan Glazer's first two movies, so it's interesting hearing someone that I'm, I'm guessing you're a completist of his, and I'm interesting hearing someone uh, come at, come at it with that perspective, knowing his work. Fred, I'm, I, I, I don't always read your letterbox reviews before I do these, but I, I was, I, I couldn't help myself. I wanted to see what, what some of your thoughts were on this to kind of help me think about this in a different way. And I, I, I kind of honed That's in on. That's why I posted it yesterday. Actually, I thought you might 
actually want to get it. Yeah, and, 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 I, and I honed in on the last paragraph of your review where you said, the zone of interest raised a question in your mind you'd never considered before, that you were born in Germany about a half a century before the end of the war. What if the Nazis had actually won? Would I have been raised like, like the Haas children to, to, to love my country and its genocidal government? Ways are accomplished something rare here. I'm wondering, because you're a guy, you've been on here for lots of World War One movie podcasts and oddly more World War One ones than World War Two ones, but like it's you've consumed a lot of content about World War One and World War Two, and you're a native of Germany. You lived there till you were 13, correct? 12, yeah. mm-hmm. 13. Right. And so I'm wondering, as someone that's consumed plenty of content about, I'm sure, the Holocaust in, in World War II, what, why do you think you responded to this particular movie in this way that made you actually kind of ask yourself that question, which I I, I, I just thought was interesting. It, it led you there. Yeah, I was really quite stunned when that question suddenly popped into my mm-hmm. mind as I was watching the movie, because many years ago, I used to watch The Man in the High Castle, which very directly dealt with that very premise, mm-hmm. one of the Nazis and... Uh, the Japanese Empire had actually won World War II. And that thought never really crossed my mind while I was watching that show. But this movie, for one reason or another, actually got me to think about it. And I think the reason for that is mainly part of what Glacier was trying to accomplish here, which is when you make movies about the Nazis, a lot of times that evil is very abstract and viewers can compartmentalize it. In a movie like Schindler's List, for example, even I as a German can say, that's not me. Those were the Nazis 70, 80 years ago. But when you watch a movie like The Zone of Interest, where you see just a regular family going about their business, um, where, you know, the mom is busy planting uh, stuff in the garden and the dad goes to work every day and he gets a promotion and they have to consider, do we relocate the entire family or do the kids stay behind so they can stay in school? Those are day-to-day issues that people in Germany dealt with back in those days and still deal with today. So all of a sudden, you can kind of put yourself into the shoes of a family back then. And especially when you grew up in Germany, you suddenly get this realization, oh, shit, that could have potentially been me if things had gone a little differently. And I think that's what makes this movie kind of accessible in a way where you suddenly kind of begin to understand the roots of the evil in Nazi Germany. Because when you have a family like that, that can just go about their business day to day while living right next to a concentration camp, the reality is they weren't especially unique. I mean, not every family lived right next to Auschwitz, obviously, but you had so many families in Germany around that time who were just looking the other way, who were going about their day to day business, sending their kids to school, parents were going to work, while all of this horrible stuff was happening all over the country. And I think when you look at it from that perspective and you're actually directly confronted with it and you see a family like that, and you're not afforded the luxury of looking away, then all of a sudden I think something really clicks in your mind and you recognize just how easy it was to succumb to the temptation of just living your life while others were being destroyed uh, throughout that time. Yeah, I'm glad I asked you about that as a starting point because it was kind of, it ties into my one big takeaway from this, which, like you said, if, if you're just like focusing on like the, actual i mean where there's plenty of movies that do it if you're just focusing on the actual uh atrocities being committed within the camp or directly focus on it with directly depict it then yeah it's easy to kind of like shrug that off and not look look too close to home uh but it's funny because i so uh uh about 16 years ago almost no almost 17 years ago i i went on a, a like a holocaust trip with my family uh went around uh went to uh, poland czech republic germany 
Uh, I saw four concentration camps. I don't, for some reason we didn't, we even drove up to Treblinka outside of Warsaw. We didn't end up going in. I can't remember why, uh, but we did go, we went, but it, it was interesting because uh, the first one we went to was outside of uh, Salzburg. It was Mauthausen. And that looked exactly how you would expect a concentration camp to look. Just looked like a massive prison from the outside and inside and outside and everything like that. And then outside of Prague, I think we did Prague next. Uh, there was one called Terezin, which was a little bit more of a transitory camp, but they like made the bathrooms nice because it was one of the ones that showed the Red Cross. They wanted it to look like it wasn't as bad as what was actually going on. It was, so that was an interesting thing I didn't know was a thing before I went on that trip. And the other two we went to were Dachau and uh, Auschwitz. And th th those really stuck with me for distinct reasons. One is that Dachau is like right it basically in downtown Munich, like just kind of in, it, it, it's hard to like forget that, that like, you know, people, I mean, I'm sure different people at the time, like would, would claim different things as to what they thought was going on there or what they knew was going on there, but hard to escape the fact that like there was just a death camp basically in downtown. Uh, Auschwitz is obviously more on the country, but and one thing that you can't help but not remember the stuff that you do is eventually see in this movie. We'll talk about the ending, like the, the hair and the shoes and things like that, that are just like preserved there. But the one thing you remember more about Auschwitz than anything else that I still talk about with my family is how quaint it is and how it just felt like a little peaceful village when we walked around there and, or like even like a, a small college campus or something like that. It's like, I, I, I just, I just did not expect concentration camps to look like that, but I don't know if I ever really like, pondered what that meant or what the implications of that were. I just thought it was odd because I was, at, I had been to other ones on that trip that just seemed more stereotypically looked like concentration camps, even if they had different locations. So what I really just like appreciated about this movie was that like, it just put that in gave that, it gave that experience that stuck with me for reasons. I don't know if I fully ever processed as a 17 year old in like a whole new perspective of like, uh, wow. Like just what kind of, what, what, like, what kind of evil, what, what, what kind of evil does it mean if you can just like, you know, exist like this, just because you created an area that looks so nice to just like live here. And it's its own different kind of evil than we usually see in the movies, but it's a very interesting way. And I just like, it, it really crystallized what I saw on that trip. And I just, I thought it was such a, and I guess he is basing it off a book from what I understand he did change a decent amount from the book, but it, I just thought it was such a unique way to approach this subject matter that just really clicked with me in a way. And I mean, Elijah, we normally reserve the end of the movie for uh, the, the end of the podcast for tech corner with you or, um, uh, but like, I, I, I we're going to have to go there a lot sooner today because I think sure. like, you know, the, 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 one of the ways in which he does that, because I think, you know, if you, if you decide to approach a movie from this perspective, uh, like he does, I think you run the risk of someone like claiming that you're like kind of downplaying those atrocities or trying to just make it more palatable by doing that. Even if I wouldn't say it's necessarily palatable because you're challenging audiences by making, having them go to a movie with this little action actually. But at the same time, like I could see why you like, some people might think it's controversial to just like uh, possibly approach it this way. But like, I think it's really brilliant what he did because it makes the movie like the movie is i actually saw it twice but to be completely candid with you elijah i actually fell asleep for like 30 minutes on my first viewing because <laughs> I, I i went on a day where like i, I didn't get enough caffeine and i've been up since 5 30 a.m and i went to an eight o'clock showing i it managed my caffeine better yesterday but like you know uh i i uh i i went again and like i on my second viewing i really just like you pick up you pick up a lot of stuff and it, it, i was like worried is this going to be rewatchable and it actually is incredibly watchable because there's just so much stuff you pick up on. And a big part of that is just like how they utilize the sound design in this movie. And it's because they're not seeing these atrocities firsthand. Like it's more, it's, it's, it's easier to stomach, but at the same time, it doesn't make it any less horrible because of what you are hearing. And I'm, I'm wondering Elijah, like, 
Uh, what did you kind of think going in? I mean, I'm sure you'd heard a little bit about like it. And I knew going in, like it got a nomination for sound design, but I didn't really like read too much as to like why that was. I was just kind of curious and it became very apparent early on. And so I'm wondering as, as you started watching this and what, what did you kind of begin to think about the, how he was making the conceit of this movie work and utilizing the utilizing his crew to do so? We should say sound design was handled by uh, Johnny Burns and movie was composed by Michael Levi, who uh did, did also did the score for under the skin and has done other stuff in the interim as well including uh Jackie and whatnot so uh, I'm just feel, curious about your feelings on how that part of the movie came together and kind of made this in, in really in service of this conceit yeah I with regards to the audio mm-hmm. um you know to the sound design to the soundscape it's it's very potent in that it's sort of, I don't want to say it's a one trick pony, but in a way it, 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 you know, at first glance, it kind of is right. You get a taste of it very early on and then it becomes sort of a running thing in the movie. Um, And I I think, you know, even in the hands of maybe a lesser squad of, uh, of technicians, right. If you will, it could have become tedious, but I think, what what's fascinating is about the way that the soundscape develops organically um the choices that are made about when to when to when to utilize the sound and when not to are are maybe even more impressive than just the idea of the soundscape in general right so for you know for everybody listening right the soundscape in the background of pretty much every you know, scene that's set outdoors during the day in this movie is punctuated by the sounds of a concentration camp, about half of which are almost just sort of like standard industrial sounds, you know, chugging machinery, coal-fired, gas-fired machinery, um, you know, uh, movement of people, trains, things like that. Um, And the other half is the more frightening sounds of a concentration camp uh you know officers and soldiers screaming you know yelling at people yelling orders gunshots women and children crying gunshots things like that so it what what i think the most clever part of the soundscape is both in that it 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 modulates and kind of develops and amps up certain of those traits over the course of the movie, you know, it's a couple of it's, for example, it's a couple of minutes in before we hear gunshots, which is something we expect, but it still catches you off guard the first time you hear it, even in that soundscape. But but what I really liked even more than that, again, is where the decisions were made to not use that soundscape. Something that I particularly liked was that there is this kind of constant machine hum that is always in the background of the outdoor scenes. I've seen different things. Is that supposed to be like a train bringing prisoners in, or was that supposed to be the crematorium, or is it both? I think it's supposed to be the crematorium. Okay. The one that the one that's like really constant. Mm-hmm. And what I really liked was the moments when, after after action and movement outside, somebody would come inside and shut the door, and it would fade out almost the entire soundscape except for that hum you just couldn't escape it no matter where you are in the film it runs 24 7 in every room 
in every place. It's louder when the doors are open and people are outside, but it's still present even when the doors are closed. Um, it kind of underscores too how used to it these people have become. Right. And it fall it follows Rudolph underground when he goes into the, you know, the tunnels of that one point in the film. Uh, it, it's everywhere. And so it, it was things like that within the soundscape that to me were more impressive. Uh, were, were rather to say were the most impressive. Obviously, the soundscape as a whole was very impressive. And I'd be very curious to hear the sound design teams, you know, about their approach, which I'm sure we will get myriad interviews and behind the scenes features about in in the future but um i liked the ways that it was that it was modulated and and toyed with um you mentioned michael levi uh she's a, a phenomenal uh musician a phenomenal composer uh she does not actually have a lot to do in, in right. this movie there's not a lot of music um but my God, when it when they do put in music, is it effective? <laughs> there's there's probably like four scenes with uh with sort of the main theme, if you're gonna call it a theme, kind of the main score. Reminded uh, me a little bit about like what you hear in Annihilation. I don't know if you had that thought too. Just some of the like overbearing like. Uh, I don't think a lot about uh, Annihilation, but yeah, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, it it did it did. Um, I I, I agree. Um. It has this very uh, kind of deconstructed sound to it, very haunting, um, uh, very, uh, in my opinion, almost train-like. It sort of reminded me of um, uh, of the score for, um, uh, well, the score that I was thinking of uh, was uh, Childhood of a Leader, another film uh, that deals with a sort of similar topic, although from a very different perspective. Um and while the score for Childhood of a Leader is much more, you know, orchestral, it has a lot of that like thrumming industrial kind of, um, you know, undercurrent to it uh, when when it is engaged. Um, so you know the you know when we talk about sound design, the those were sort of you know what I liked the most about this film. Um, but in craft in general, I mean, there's so much to talk about here. I thought it was just, you know, brilliantly directed the, the you know, shot selection, the, the idea of, you know, there's almost no close-ups in the entire film. There's a couple at some very key moments, but by and large, the film stays very far away from, you know, from these people, the cinematography, uh, Lucas Zal, who, uh, is uh Paolo Pavlikowski's guy. So I he, didn't know that. he shot which is interesting, right? He shot Ida and Cold War, which are these two gorgeous, like sumptuous black and white movies that have this rich depth and texture to them. And he's and then you come and shoot Zone of Interest, which is like an ugly film, but it's so intentional. And it was another decision, you know, technically that I just adored. You know, there's, I think, just in a way, it kind of ties into what Fred was saying, uh, you know, into Fred's feelings uh, and sort of the reaction that you had to the film, right? Where it's, it, it really made you engage with the sort of, with the, uh, with the contemporaneous nature of history and the fact that, you know, if some couple of... <laughs> 
you know, quarks in the in the quantum realm had been different, uh, you might have, you know, it may have been a different life for you kind of thing. And I think this film is very much aware of that. I think that was why the decision was made to shoot the movie the way it was, which is extremely digital, extremely unstylish, because it divorces the movie from this idea that this is some, something in the past. You know, a lot of World War One and World War II films have uh, almost a romantic quality to them. And I'm not going to sit here and slag off other people's work, uh, you know, but for comparison, for example, the miniseries All the Light We Cannot See came out uh, last in December, November, somewhere right in there. And I haven't really I haven't watched it yet. I've watched some little clips here and there. And it's it's heavily stylized. It's extremely stylish. It has this really beautiful, you know, vintage color palette and look to it. But the result is that it just feels like a story from a different era. And the difference being, right, in the technical execution of this film, so in the sound and in the visuals, everything is engaged in an extremely modern way. Because I think, you know, and we'll talk about it, right, the thematic material, the idea is is on full display. That it's like, this is not as far behind us as we think it might be as we sometimes feel like it might be, right? Well, yeah, I've heard a lot of people just talk about yeah. the fact that it feels pretty current anyway, just, you know, a lot of those themes can be applied to atrocities going on in the world today. Elijah gave us a lot to chew on there, Fred, so I, you can take that wherever you want, because I was initially just going to throw it to you on sound, but was there anything specifically, with sound or otherwise, whether or what he did with the camera that kind of struck you the most from a filmmaking perspective as you watched this movie? So just to kind of piggyback off of that mm -hmm. last point that Elijah made, I mean, look at uh, its fellow Best Picture nominee Oppenheimer as an example, set during the exact same time period. And you couldn't find two more different movies in that lineup this year, probably. <laughs> and right. I, I think it's fascinating that you make a conscious choice like that as a filmmaker, because I think, I mean, people will struggle in a lot of ways to engage with the zone of interest because it is a challenging movie for the reasons that we already discussed, because the fact that these people act in such a human way in some ways, like going about their day-to-day -day business, just makes them more inhuman in the process. And the fact that we always hear those background noises, every single time we hear a gunshot, every single time we hear a scream, it just takes us aback because we can feel that something is so profoundly wrong there. And the fact that they don't realize it anymore and that it's just become white noise to them, something they live with on a day-to-day -day basis, and they don't even notice it anymore. That's where you really get to detach yourself from them. And every single time that happens, you just get this feeling of absolute disgust. And I think it's fascinating that you do it with such simple ways, because there are very few stereotypically evil Nazi rants in this. Like, you don't get a lot of anti-Semitic shouting, which is what so often happens. There is just this kind of acceptance that we live here. This is our community. The father goes to work every day and comes home. And there isn't that weird tendency that a lot of movies from this era have to hammer home the point just how horrible and awful these people are by almost turning well, them into caricatures. Yeah, I wanted to kind of, that was kind of one of the other things I really specifically wanted to touch on was the idea that like Hedwig and Rudolph in some ways are not 
depicted as being like pure ideologues who like just, you know, are driven necessarily by hatred for Jews. It's almost like they're more driven by power and status in some way, in like, in some ways is how they're depicted. And I think there's a couple of different ways in which it does that, which ties into one of the more, what things I wanted to point on, point out on the sound was just like the certain, what stuck with me the most about it was like certain moments where you actually notice it. Cause I think you can watch it in the movie probably 10 straight times and like find one different interesting thing each time about, Oh wait, they dropped that sound in, in that moment or something like that, which is part of the, why it made it so ironically rewatchable for me, given the subject matter. But like, so one of the early, one of the first scenes includes where there's a delivery to the house, uh, which it turns out to just be a delivery of some of the belongings they've taken from the Jews that have been brought to the concentration camp. And I, I don't know who some of the other women are that were in the house at one point that Hedwig brings, tells them to each choose a piece of clothing. There's some other, I guess, friends maybe that are just older than, because they're not her daughters, they're older than that. Then she like tells one of the people that made the delivery, oh, bring this one to my room though. And what that is, like a massive fur coat that is taken from uh, one of the Jewish people and one of the Jewish women, and, and it has a tube of lipstick. And, you know, I think there are maybe some there's maybe some contingent of Nazis or other Germans in that time that might have been so anti-Semitic that they that they wouldn't even want to touch a Jew, I suppose. But she is willing to just put that lipstick on to see how it accessorizes like with her with this fur coat. And it's like that, that you're she's willing to put that on, put put that on her lips when it's been on a Jew's lips before, I think kind of like stuck with me. And it was like, oh, she's not like repelled by Jews as like a as a race. She's just like happy to like live this lifestyle at the expense of them more than anything else, which doesn't make her any better or worse. I just thought it was interesting that that was how they chose to depict them. And then when she is putting the lipstick on, that was one of the first times I noticed the gunshots in the distance. And I and I was just like, oh wow, like this is really truly showing how like these people can just like truly compartmentalize in a disturbing way. And I just thought that was like a fascinating combination of like a character moment and these technical moments that they're that, that were kind of coming together as one. And there's like countless moments in the film like that, but that is probably like the one, that's probably one sequence that's going to stick with me more than maybe anything in any 2023 movie. A lot of the decisions, and that's what, that's what, I mean, you, you're just, I was, what I was going to say largely was that <laughs> I felt like was another example of just like a point where the, the decision to use uh, you know, part of the soundscape or not to use part of the mm-hmm. soundscape was was particularly relevant. And that was uh, I just thought it was very strong the way that it was applied. Yeah, no, I, I, I get you. And, and um, I, uh, I let me let me ask you while, while we're there, Fred, I want to ask you a little more specifically about these characters, because we've been going for over 20 minutes and really haven't actually talked that much about them. How how specifically did you feel about uh, Sandra Hoover's performance and uh, and what did you think about like specifically how they chose to like depict this woman operating in this world and what really stood out to you about what both she and Jonathan Glazer did with that character? So first of all, I mean, kudos for the year that she's had. I watched Anatomy of a Fall uh, just last night, actually. And it's really just quite amazing how different these two performances are and uh, like what is being asked of her and really an actress that few people have heard of. I actually didn't even realize this, but I'd seen her a few years ago in um, a movie called I Am Your Man, which uh, was this funny German comedy where Dan Stevens uh, is an android who uh, hmm. moves in with a woman uh, to become sort of like her boyfriend. I hadn't heard uh, of it. Really, re- really amusing stuff. But what I find really fascinating about that character in particular, because Rudolf Hurst, I mean, in a lot of ways, he is a stereotypical Nazi who goes to work every day. Uh, he believes in the system. He doesn't have to be a ranting ideologue to be 
extremely complicit in everything that the Nazis are doing, obviously, because he has accepted that this is his life, this is how he makes his money, and he has entirely detached himself from the atrocities that he's committing. But there were so many Nazis like that, that that we've seen before in movies that I think Hedwig's portrayal here is far more interesting because being the wife of a high-ranking Nazi official was a great position to be in. You had money, you had prestige, you get to you got to hang out with all the other wealthy people, you had access to resources that people who weren't all dialed in uh, didn't get. Modern home? Mm-hmm, yeah. Like a beautiful backyard. Um, would be nice if there were some more vines on the wall, right? So you I can count on one that. hand how many movies I've ever seen set in the 40s where there, uh, where there means where there's a, a house with a pool depicted. That's just also not that common either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and what I found especially striking, of course, were, I mean, again, a lot of the conversations are what you would find in a typical family. But then you have those lines that are just so callous and so brutal um, that you just get a jolt uh, again and you recognize, oh, right, like I almost forgot like what kind of movie this was. There is that moment where she shows her mom the backyard. And I mean, it's like a fairly conventional scene that you would see in a lot of dramas where, you know, the mother comes for a visit and the daughter shows off the new home and she's so proud of everything that she's accomplished. And then they sit down and they share a laugh because her husband calls her the queen of Auschwitz. And they have a huge laugh about that while there are all of these terrible sounds happening right next door to them. And then the other scene that really struck me was when they were uh, in the bedroom together and she asks her husband to take her back to that lovely spa town in Italy uh, that they used to visit all the time. And my first thought was, wait a minute, isn't there a war going on right now? Like, isn't there fighting all over Europe at this point? And you're asking your husband to... In which Italy is a principal back. actor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you want to go to the nice bar town, relax, be pampered, when obviously you're right next door to all of these hellish atrocities being unleashed upon um, like fellow Germans, uh, fellow Europeans, who you don't even acknowledge as humans. Uh, it's really that that I think makes this such a unique experience, because, again, this stuff is really subtle in a lot of ways. And it's just one single line that reminds you of just how evil these people are. And you don't need these lengthy rants to get the point across. And that, to me, is the sign of really terrific writing, where you can very efficiently make that point uh, without uh, having to rely on, again, these typical, stereotypical Nazi conversations that we always get that are just way too in your face about everything. So, Elijah, one thing I wanted to make sure I remember to ask you about and what Fred discussed with her is gives me a good opportunity to do so with when you're t talking about this character specifically and how they portray her or Hess. I mean, I think they're really asking you to contemplate just how evil these people are in a particular way. And originally, our friend Ben was going to be on this podcast for scheduling reasons. It kind of worked out well for me to have Fred do it instead. But when I told Ben, like, hey, like, let's make this change in the schedule. He's like, oh, I'm cool with that. But one thing I want to make sure you discuss is, uh, but even if I'm not on it, is you need to talk about this critical uh, idea that's been discussed in a lot of reviews that this movie is about the banality of evil because Ben vehemently disagreed with this idea. And I, after I, after he told me that, I went to look at your letterbox review and you had a very specific passage about this very same idea. So Ben, I was able to assuage Ben's concerns that we would not address, that we would, that we would address this uh, topic that he so wanted to make sure got covered. 
And I'm curious when you th- when you think about these characters and uh, this idea that like yes, Ben was not wrong. I've I, I don't listen, I don't read or listen to a ton of critics, but I feel like the majority of the ones I do have talked about this idea in connection with this movie in varying ways. And it was something that you pushed back against in your letterbox review. And I'm wondering when you think about the kind of evil that is being depicted in this movie, w- whether with with someone like with with Haas or with uh, in, in different ways with how they watch uh, Hedwig go through the world, wondering what were your thoughts on like specifically the nature of the evil that Jonathan Glazer is trying to portray and why he's not just trying to say something about the banality of evil, because I had that in my head, I think, as I was going to the film. And I was able to tell Ben when I came out, like, yeah, I don't know if that was necessarily my takeaway, too, but I'm certainly seeing that idea in a lot of places. Yeah, I look, I mean, I think there is a tendency to go for sloganeering with, you know, with when when people kind of respond to a film, especially like this. Um, and it goes both ways. I mean, I saw people who reviewed this very, very positively <coughs> were like, aha, the banality of evil manifests. And then there were people who reviewed the film very negatively and were like, duh, this is the banality of evil. What do we need a full movie on this <laughs> kind of thing? Um, and I just completely disagree with that, you know, assessment in general, period. Um, and, and I would argue that I think a lot of people need to reread uh, Eichmann in Jerusalem because it's, it is it is not making the same, uh, Hannah Arendt is not making the same contention. Uh, Can that, you give us a little context for what that means? I, I think, I mean, uh, you're a well, very well-read guy more so than any, almost anyone I know. What, is, what does that mean? That fair, Eichmann yeah. Jerusalem? I mean, I think a lot of people know the phrase banality of evil, but to actually know where it comes from, um, the the original phrase is the subtitle for um, uh, Hannah Arendt, who is a philosopher, social critic uh, from the mid-20th century. Um, she wrote a book called Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil, which was sort of a half biography, half journalist editorial half philosophy three halves book that was her it's basically her experience uh, as an observer of adolf eichmann's trial um in jerusalem adolf eichmann was famously uh a, a the nazi who is sort of largely viewed as being you know as one of the top people responsible for crafting the the final solution. Uh, he was present at the Von C conference. Um, he had a you know a big role in it. Uh, after the war, he fled to nice retirement in Argentina. Uh, to, yeah, I don't know. Why I just blanked on it. He I was going to say, if you want to hear more about it, uh, listen to our pod on Operation Finale that we did several years ago. Yes, <laughs> right. Uh, he uh, he escaped to uh, to Argentina uh, for a little while uh, before um, he was. Uh, kidnapped and brought back, uh, brought to Israel by uh, Mossad, um, and placed on trial in a in a very public manner, uh, found guilty and executed. All the while, this was in 1960, 61, somewhere right in there. Um, Hannah Arendt uh, was present at the time uh, and observed. I think she she went to Jerusalem specifically to observe the trial. Um, and so, and wrote this book basically about the way that Eichmann presented himself during the trial, about the, you know, the way that the prosecution uh, presented their facts. And and what I think 
generally obviously has become the takeaway from the book is the subtitle is the idea of the banality of evil um and hannah arendt's contention was by and large that adolf eichmann was who he presented himself to be essentially that he believed this he truly believed this idea that he was just a good worker that he didn't really know what was going on he didn't uh you know he was a, he he was aware of what he was doing it wasn't like he was insane um but he was he you know presented himself during his trial as being just sort of a, a cog in the machine and he wasn't dogmatic he didn't hate jews he didn't you know there were all these things about the way that he presented himself and and Hannah Arendt's contention in the book is that that is correct that the way that he viewed himself the way that he portrayed himself during the trial uh was accurate and so the his evil was not one of traditional understanding there was no uh in her to her mind there was no sociopathy there was no uh there was no dogmatic evil it was dispassionate uh, it was dispassionate and and it was banal it, the idea was um you know that there was this kind of person who could simply turn a blind eye to bad things happening um, and she never, to be clear, she never discounts this as not being evil. The title is The Banality of Evil. It is still evil. But the problem is, it, it, there, okay, there's a lot of problems. <laughs> if you haven't already sort of figured it out. Um, the Banality of Evil, you know, Eichmann in Jerusalem was a fascinating book, uh, very important text in the period, but is largely now kind of contextualized and dis you know, placed aside as not necessarily being the most accurate understanding of Eichmann um, or of uh, of the of the evil of Nazis. Um, not not the least because of the various other problems that the book has, like the giant section where Hannah Arendt blames the Jews for the Holocaust. <laughs> um, so there's a there's a lot going on there, but. The main thing is that when you talk about this idea that, that that this evil is banal, I think it relies on a it would it would then rely on a portrayal of Rudolf Haas uh, as as the way that Eichmann portrayed himself, mm. which was that he didn't he he was he wasn't a bad guy he just. He knew about everything going on, but he he just wanted to work. He just wanted to live his life kind of thing. Um, he sat in a comfortable office in Berlin for the most part and never right. had to confront the realities of what he was doing directly face to face. Right. And so the 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 portrayal of the horses in this film, right, is is not one of banality. We've already kind of touched on the, these people are not good. They are they are bad people by any metric, um, and the fact that they have an idyllic home life doesn't cover for that. Um, you know, there are specific moments that obviously stand out very succinctly. Um, you know, notorious uh, examples include where uh, Hedwig perceives some kind of slight from one of her maids 
and very calmly tells her <laughs> that uh, she'll ha- she's going to have her husband uh, execute her and have her ashes tossed across a, a nearby prairie. Um, or towards the end of the film where Rudolph is at a gala and slips away to call uh, to call Hedwig and and then muses on the phone about how he's so bored and how he was mostly just thinking about how he could effectively gas everyone um, at the at the gala. Uh, but those are those are examples of their derangement showing through when the reality is that it really underlies everything that they do. They are they're they're not driven by a desire to to just have a happy life. The happy life is the representation for them of the perfection of their duty, of what they see as being their job as as Germans. And it's not just um <laughs> It's not just it's not quite just like punching a clock. Exactly. Exactly. There's a little more going on there in a in a way than yeah. Exactly. And and I would I would encourage people to look into, you know, what Jonathan Glazer has openly talked about as his kind of inspiration and research for this film. Obviously, you know, the zone of interest, a book being adapted, then again, the book's not really actually does doesn't really factor a lot into the movie. A, a book that I would say is probably more relevant is Black Earth, um, which is a book that Glazer has mentioned as one of his research uh, materials. It's a book from 2015. Uh, it came out right after Zone of Interest, uh, the book. And uh, the the book Black Earth deals with basically uh, Hitler's plan for Ukraine, the idea of the of the Lebensraum, of the basically <laughs> capturing this territory or this country and and making it the new frontier um, and making it a place where the the proud and perfect German race would be able to replace everybody else that was living there. They would simply just get rid of all the people living in Ukraine and make that the new German frontier. And uh, I think what this, what this movie is kind of doing is connecting this almost intentionally, I would say to the idea of the banality of evil, that, that, that even in their supposed idyllic world where they are, you know, I think Hedwig specifically mentions like, but we're doing what Hitler wants. We're, we're, we're we're pioneers we're on the new frontier right it sounds romantic until you think about what it actually entails um it, it sounds banal until you consider the 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 obstacles that need to be removed for the Lebensraum to occur and one last thing that i want to touch on is because it, you know in this argument about the 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 banal you know is the banality of of evil portrayed accurately is it not portrayed accurately is it portrayed at all I think there's a tendency to, uh, in in modern populations, to inflict incrimination on every person that lived in Germany during World War II. Um, to basically question why wasn't what you know? It's easy enough, I think, for us to look back and basically say, like, you had to have known, right? You there's there's no way you couldn't have known. 
uh everybody is either they were either everybody was either a nazi or they weren't kind of thing um and i just don't think you know from a historiographic perspective i don't think that's a i don't think it's a helpful way of looking at it the the responsibility for the holocaust for the shoah lies firmly on the shoulders of the ss and, and of the nazi high command and so the question should really just be what's their excuse I'm not saying that there weren't average Germans who were evil, and I'm and I'm also not saying that all of them were. I'm saying that the the focus should be on the SS, on the on the kind of bureaucratic class, and that's where the banality of evil falls apart, I think. Because there I don't think there is an excuse. And there is where I question you know the idea that okay, well you weren't dogmatic, you didn't hate Jews right off the cuff but you clearly had something else going on <laughs> um and i think that's what this movie most succeeds in in that portrayal is recognizing that you didn't have to be a jew-hating nazi to still be a nazi to still be a villain um and yeah i mean i know we're getting way far, far no, away no 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 here, no no like... I, i'm glad you went there though i i'm 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 trying to stay i'm trying to stay with you on it too so when you're saying like Hey, you didn't have to be a you didn't have to be a Jew hating Nazi, but you're saying that this this idea that uh, Hannah Arendt you know promulgated while watching the Eichmann trials, it was it kind of bore out from thinking, hey, that wasn't necessarily what Eichmann was, though, right? That's what you're saying. It's just it, you're saying it doesn't necessarily apply to all the people. There's almost too there's too it's it's too much of a it's too much of a big tent to be able to just like use that blanket statement. I guess is what you're saying for everyone, I suppose. And I I I I I, I, I do see where you're coming from on that. It's just it's it, it's it's probably almost too much of a it, you can't use something like that as a catch-all. I suppose when you're talking about the people that were living during this time. Uh, but I, I do think it's important to highlight, like you said, that like you know. Uh, you can't necessarily blame all paint all Germans with that broad bush, but at the same time, like I think this movie is, if nothing else, also about how easy it was to look the other way. Uh, it's just like here they're doing it with like the people that like you know obviously have no excuse because they're they're right there. Uh, Fred, did, what, did uh, Elijah once again give us a ton to chew on there? Uh, I'm curious. Was uh, did did you have any did you have any thoughts you wanted to add to that idea? Because again, it was just something I'd seen popping up in a lot of criticism or just any other feelings you necessarily had on like the way that like you know uh, Jonathan Glazer decides to depict this particular strand of evil with these people in these different scenarios and just how they're, they, how they're like, uh, you know, surrounded by so much, but yet still kind of in their own little world. Yeah. To go back to the idea of the banality of evil mm -hmm. again, very quickly, I would actually argue, and again, not to go on too much of a tangent here, mm -hmm. uh, the big movie that came out last year, that was, I would say far more about that core idea uh, not to reduce it to a cliche, uh, is Killers of the Flower Moon. Because you had one person at the way top who was obviously the driver of that evil that was permeating uh, that it was state just, of Oklahoma. It, it was really dispassionately driven by economic gain and not much else. Right. And you had like this permission structure in the town where a lot of people were aware of what was going on, but they were looking the other way because it benefited them financially. Uh, it was good to be on the inside. And you even have a character like Ernst Burkhardt who was married to an Osage woman, but because it was benefiting him and he was getting his instructions from above, he was willing to go along with it because it benefited him personally. And 
again, not to necessarily deviate too much from the zone of interest, but I would argue if you really want to make a case for a movie depicting that core idea this year, Kills of the Flower Moon comes a lot closer than the zone of interest did. Um, Rudolph Hurst is an interesting character because I was looking him up a little bit and um, he was executed a few years after the war. Uh, the movie doesn't really uh, have any of that stuff at the end that you normally get to explain what happened to these characters, where did they end up? Yeah, and he apparently had apparently had a bit of a moral reckoning at the end. So that's really the interesting thing that I wanted to point out here, mm -hmm. um, because a lot of Nazis didn't when they were uh, put on trial and then eventually executed. A lot of them still believe to the very end that. Hitler's ideology was correct and that they did their fatherland proud. Should also say that there were like played at Eichmann's trial, there were like tapes. It kind of showed he kind of undercut some of the ways he tried to present himself. I actually watched a documentary about that last year for, and as a part of the screenings, uh, screening committee for the Palmetto Film Festival, like he, like, I don't think he even like necessarily had quite the, like the, I don't want to go so far as to call it a moral awakening, but like, I don't think he was as reflective as it actually seems like Haas was. Not that I, feel that bad about the way he met his demise no and I, I mean it's the same thing that elijah was saying with the banality of evil it's still evil and just mm -hmm. because you write uh, a, a letter at the end of your life trying to make excuses and recognizing that some of what you did was wrong doesn't exculpate you from the massive crimes that you committed mm -hmm. but i still find it interesting from a psychological perspective because at that point he had already been uh sentenced to death he was going to be uh hanged in poland and he was writing to his wife like he was uh, writing in his journal and he got to a point where he at some point did like contemplate what he was doing and he did express that what he did might have actually been wrong and I do think what the movie is very good at depicting even without pointing any of that out because you have to do a little bit of research yourself to get to that when you're like in the thick of it within that permission structure when you live in a country that has enabled all of these crimes uh and allows their citizens to just commit them and to become the worst sides of themselves it's very easy to disassociate yourself from any kind of morality and this idea that what you're doing is wrong and when you look at this family and the children too, right? Because the children, they're being indoctrinated and raised in a country that's teaching them that what the parents are doing is noble, that this is the right way to live your life, uh, to unequivocally believe in the German government, the German ideology, uh, and even better to actively contribute to cleansing Germany. And I think that, again, by depicting this day-to-day -day life for this family, even though you have this just absolutely perverse contrast of it being right next to a concentration camp, you kind of start to understand how it was possible for them to get away with this and how to justify this to themselves. Because they were really living a normal life. And so many of these scenes like seem recognizable to us, having your friends over for afternoon tea. Um, or even, you know, Rudolf has his birthday when you have people over, like shaking his hand. It's like, you know, at any company, really. The boss has his big birthday, uh, the subordinates are there shaking their hand, they all hope for a promotion. And because the Germany during that time, um, all of this had been normalized, 
none of them really were asking themselves during that time, is any of this okay? Because everybody else was doing it too. And only afterwards, when it became clear that this was a losing ideology, that the war was over, that Germany wasn't going to be Nazi Germany anymore. People were suddenly sitting in their prison cells all by themselves. They had a lot of time to think. And maybe when you don't live that beautiful, tranquil day-to-day -day life anymore, you suddenly realize, huh, maybe this wasn't actually the right way to live my life now that I'm about to die. What's funny is that like really the, there's only, there's not that many moments that actually like snap, snap either of them really out of it, uh, out of this like uh -huh. um, facade that they're living in. You know, I, there's a moment where the, the, the remains are interrupt his family swim. Uh, yeah. And that seems to really obviously throw him off. And there's like, I, honestly, she seems thrown off by her mom being thrown off, but not by, but she's not thrown off by the same things, obviously that throw her mom off. There's not much else, you know, they're able to just like kind of keep it up. Sorry, Elijah, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to say the big, right. The biggest uh, kind of shattering of their structural, uh, you know, illusion mm -hmm. is actually an internal squabble. Like yeah. it is, it is. Uh, Where are we going to, are, are you going to take that promotion? Right. That, uh, that really drives the most, um, you know, kind of a wedge between them. Mm -hmm. And in a way it's, it's probably the most like vitriolic we actually see them. And it's, it's, it's interesting to me because it's like the context is so, you know, unrelated to the Holocaust, but at the same time, it is, it is deeply indicative of the kind of people that they are. Uh, you know, and you asked about, you asked, I don't know, 30 minutes ago about Sandra Hüller's acting, um, you know, and I thought that was honestly one of the best moments because that's where she totally loses it. She's like stalking through the house, screaming at people, uh, you know, screaming at the servants. Um, she, as an actress, just unbelievable. She, she affects this walk uh, in a few parts that I I don't, I, the only thing I can think is that it was observed in some way. She saw somebody do it in, you know, just, she has this like trudge, the way she walks. It's like this stiff, like she doesn't bend her knees. <laughs> it's very off-putting and yet feels completely natural because as I said, it, I just, I can't imagine it not being an observed trait, but it's like in those moments, she comes as close as we get in the entire movie to that, you know, to that sort of stereotypical Nazi that I think Fred, you know, that we were talking about earlier. Right. But even in those moments, she never, she never, you know, breaks fully. It still feels very, uh, very natural. And, and Rudolph is the same way. Um, you know, there, it, we never really see him become, that you know that he, he never turns into the you know Amon got the uh you know insane Schindler's list type of Nazi, but that doesn't necessarily change the darkness of his portrayal. Mm. Um and you know when we talked about kind of the end of his life, right? And it's funny because there's there I don't remember where I read it, but it's like this great just like duo fold on you know kind of the end of his life. It's like he wrote this this acknowledgement that he um you know he wrote he writes this letter to the state prosecutor where he says you know like i now realize 
that I have, you know, that I have basically been pretty awful for humanity used my life to destroy you know the lives of others kind of thing and then pretty much summarily immediately afterwards there's some like recognition of an interview that he did with uh like a military psychologist during the nuremberg trial <laughs> where the guy is like yeah i mean he's just psychotic like he doesn't <laughs> he's he he he's so matter of fact he has so little like recognition for kind of like the actual scope of what he's done um and it it's fascinating because it it kind of throws everything into a different light it's like yeah he he may have realized that he hurt people but it's you almost have to question at that point if knowing what we know about him is that even like sincere is there really any is the recognition just a like, wow, I did something bad and I'm going to be punished for it kind of thing? Or, or, you know, is there anything deeper going on really? And that's what I like about the end of the movie, because we've talked about, you know, Fred mentioned there is no, you know, a movie like this, you'll get like title cards that tell you what happened to everyone. Even in a movie that I watched recently for the first time that I loved, uh, Conspiracy, which is about the Von oh, yeah. Conference. Love Conspiracy. Um, Great film, but even that one ends with like you know, each each one of them gets a freeze frame where they're like you know, yeah. executed in nineteen forty seven or you know killed in action and whatever kind of thing. Um, yeah, with uh, Stanley Tucci as Adolf Eichmann, I believe, if I remember correctly. And, yes, as Eichmann and uh, and Kenneth Branagh playing himself. I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean Hydrich um, <laughs> playing Richard Hydrich. Wow. But uh, <laughs> no, nah, I love Branagh. Um, but. Um, what I, what I really liked about the ending of this film is that they communicate a similar idea, but not in a conventional way. And it's just so, you know, glazery, right? I don't know. Do you want to drop a spoiler uh, alert, Josh, for uh, the, the ending? The Nazis don't win. Right. <laughs> a, spoil, a spoiler alert for for format and style right? no yeah no I, I mean i was yeah this is i was i was pretty close to wanting to jump ahead to the end anyway so go ahead right the ending uh it, there is a there's a decision made at the ending a technical you know formal decision that i think is brilliant which is that uh you know at the kind of the climax of the film rudolph you know gets to reconcile his his the two halves of his life he he's gonna be gonna he's gonna go back to auschwitz he's kind of he's successful in achieving what he wants to achieve and the film ends with him completely alone in these dark bureaucratic hallways uh you know somewhere in in, in Orianenburg, right and he he stands in the hallway and like dry heaves like he almost throws up uh yeah i've seen a lot of readings on this what to make of it and and then the film does something very interesting which is that it cuts to auschwitz in the modern day um and there is a very brief you know maybe two and a half minutes kind of just little interlude of these quiet single shots these little scenes of people cleaning an opening uh you know there's the the staff workers the janitors at at auschwitz today uh cleaning the museum and getting everything ready um and then it cuts back to haas and he vomits again or attempts to dry heaves right and then just 
walks down the stairs into the darkness and disappears. And that's the end of the film. Um, and, and the way that I read it, right, is in that moment, he is sort of questioning what any of this means. He's ha He has a sort of out-of-body experience in a way where he wonders if him being a good Nazi has meant anything. Wasn't it right before that too that he has the call with Hedwig and is like right where he the, where he says he's party. gonna try and gas everyone <laughs> or that he couldn't think of anything at this party that was largely like kind of celebrating him going to like take on the big task of the Hungarian purge the purge of the Hungarian Jews and he's like yeah I just kind of like thought about how I'd gas this entire room of people there the whole time and right like I mean so, so how do how do you so what is what is your reading of that or how are you how are you getting from that to him then kind of looking inward in the way you're saying he is. Well, because he's he he in that moment he's sort of left to reflect on on himself on his task, right? He's finally presented with, "You've done a great job. Hey, here's a big gala and celebration of you in this operation that's going to be named mm -hmm. after you." Um, and he's never had to. You can tell, kind of in this moment, right? He's never had to think about legacy. He's never had to think about what he's really leaving behind because, in his sociopathic mind it's all bit it's all it's all preordained like he was he's a good worker and you know he's on the frontier he's carrying out hitler's orders happily um kind of thing and so to recognize in that moment like oh you know will like am i gonna get like this operation is gonna be named after me will i be in textbooks kind of thing um, and he started sort of reckoning like that. It's like, it might not actually be the way that, you know, you think it is. I, I loved in that scene in the gala, probably has one of my favorite visuals in the entire film. The first shot of the gala is of uh, an ice sculpture of, of a swastika, which I just thought was hilarious because ice sculptures are meant to, to, to fade. They're meant, they're meant to melt away. An ice sculpture is an extravagance that is meant to represent fleeting beauty, right? You have ice sculptures of swans and ballerinas and shit. You typically don't make your national symbol an ice sculpture uh, because at the end of the night, it's going to be a puddle on the floor. And I, I liked that because I think it sort of reflected this, this notion that it's like, eh, everything is not going well. Just, you know... <laughs> You're talking about at this point, it's like 1944. The, the war is at a turning point. Things are starting, people are starting to realize that the dream of greater Germany, of, you know, of the Third Reich is not, is not what it's maybe thought, what they maybe thought it was going to pan out to be. Mm. And so what I really loved is that instead of getting a title card as he walks away that says, Rudolf Haas was captured after the war, tried uh, and executed. He expressed remorse before his death kind of thing. We see instead maybe an imagination of what he realizes the legacy might be, which is that all of his hard work was remembered. It was just remembered as the worst human tragedy in history. And that's manifesting itself in him kind of regurgitating re-retching driving this kind of like t internal while internalizing all this toxicity and that's what he's doing in the present day 
Yeah, in in mm -hmm. a, in a bit, yeah, and then you see, you know, we see instead of a title card, we see Auschwitz as it is now, perfectly maintained as as Rudolph and Hedwig would what Hedwig would have loved to see, but maintained as a relic to how terrible they were. Um, you should and, also note that Glazer actually worked pretty closely with Auschwitz in making this. I didn't. I mean, it was literally it. filmed there. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't. I, I recognized as even though it's been 17 years since I was there, I recognized the modern day stuff. I didn't, and I'm like, okay, cool. They got their cooperation for this. I didn't realize they filmed like everything right there. That was really, I did not know that till like right before, an hour before we started recording. Yeah, I believe they had, to, basically the house didn't exist anymore. So they had to rebuild it or they had to use, they had to rebuild like part of it. But yeah, I mean, all those walls, all the tops of buildings were, you know, the tops of buildings were, I think, digitally repaired with VFX and things like that. And obviously the the life was added with VFX, smoke, lights, things like that. But the buildings themselves were real. Fred. And did, again, just adds to the adds to the feeling. <laughs> Fred, did you have a, did you have any uh additional thoughts on the ending? Because again, like I said, I've seen a seen a lot of different interpretations but i can certainly see the the i, I can certainly get my I, I can't i am able, i am able to wrap my head around the one that elijah just discussed though so i think the scene that elijah mentioned earlier is actually kind of telling uh in terms of where hers's mindset is at that point where he and his wife first discuss their promotion his promotion and they have to make a decision about leaving auschwitz because the reality is at that point his wife especially is essentially going against this whole idea that everything they do is for Nazi Germany. Because they were just told by the Nazi superiors, you did a great job here. Now you have to leave and do it somewhere else. And as long as her home life that was so beautiful and luxurious and idyllic was in line with what the Nazi command wanted of them, everything was great. But now that those two no longer align, all of a sudden there is a huge issue. And I think that's kind of where it starts a little bit for the family to maybe consider that, you know, maybe they aren't actually uh, as highly regarded as they thought. And when you have a gala thrown for you, normally, yeah, that means that you have peaked, that you have achieved something with your life, uh, that people respect you, that people admire you, you've done a fantastic job. But when you've reached a stage where you can't even enjoy being celebrated anymore because everything to you is about performing your task to the best of your ability then what is it really all for i mean you are getting to a point now where you have trouble at home because your wife is mad at you because you left and you essentially disrupted the peaceful home life you can't even celebrate the recognitions that you're receiving from your superiors and then at the very end, it's very fitting that he is entirely alone because normally he's surrounded by his underlings who venerate him because they obviously want to be in his good graces and so they can get promotions. He's surrounded by his loving family, by his beautiful German kids who are obviously going to uh, grow up and also be very high ranking members of the Nazi party. But at the very end, he's all by himself in that corridor. And as I was saying earlier, when you're by yourself and you're not really in the thick of it, that's the time when you start to contemplate, when you start to realize, are things really going the way that I would want them to? And I will say the ending did take me a little bit by surprise in the sense that it struck me as sort of abrupt, where I think a lot of people in my showing, and there were actually quite a few people in my showing, um, I was watching it at the Bell Court, which is our uh, 
artsy Nashville movie theater um, where you get a different kind of audience than you would get in a regular AMC. So uh, the showing was half full, like people were really dialed in. But you could tell that people were a little surprised when the credits all of a sudden started rolling at the end. Um, but, but I do think the more I give it some thought that it was the right place to leave Rudolf Huss in. Um, because I don't even know what you would have done next. Because there's no point in showing what happens afterwards. We know that they lose the war, obviously. So his yeah, just go, just of, going going back to the house while he was carrying out the rest of that plan. I mean, to it would have it wouldn't have really added much to the movie, I guess. Given like no, if you want to be consistent, been, yes, because he would have been back with his family and he would have been in a good place again. Because all of a sudden he's respected again as the head of household and uh, the German father, which obviously was very important uh, in Nazi Germany as the patriarch uh, to be respected. But again, if he's all by himself in those corridors and he has that moment of maybe introspection, that is a dark place to leave him at and something that the character deserves. So it is probably the right call in the end to end it on that note and maybe catch your viewers off guard as opposed to doing something a little bit more conventional where he might get a better ending than uh, that character is really worthy of. Yeah, and I can't say I came across... I mean, again, like I appreciated different readings of exactly what is going on there. I can't say I came out of it with a really strong, you know, uh, take either way on like if this was him having some kind of vision or of of the future and reacting to that or whatnot. But if nothing else, like I, I did kind of appreciate just like a, you know, a reminder like this is what a, this is what it was all in service of, you know, and uh, it's you know, for, for every, for everything that like they, for every awful thing they compartmentalized it, it didn't really result in anything other than them being remembered like that. And I think, you know, you can, if nothing else, you can take that from it. And I, I really appreciated that. If, it, 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 really appreciate that. If nothing else, I, I almost could have done with a few, I mean, it might've, this is just me like remembering my memories from my trip when I was 17, but I almost would have thought it would have been interesting if like, you know, you'd even gotten more shots of just like what Auschwitz looked like at that point. It's just, it's very, it's very interesting. I, um, uh, but like, I mean, there's plenty of places you can also do that. Uh, There's a really good movie out there. Actually, I'll, I'll wait till recommendations for that. Um, but, uh, I, again, I thought it was pretty fitting and also pretty fitting that they did have one final phone call. Like he did, uh, aside from just the comment he made to, uh, Hedwig in that moment, uh, just like, I, I, we didn't really talk that much about that corner of the movie. Uh, just like, watching her when he is gone uh I, and th- that was probably part part of part of a little bit of almost what i fell asleep for during the first time which i mean i, I don't i feel like a lot of people who really like the movie are even talking about how maybe it loses a little steam in the second half i don't know if i totally disagree but like i i did really kind of appreciate like just seeing how content she was with him not there uh it was interesting like we talked about how like just that decision was like kind of the one big fissure that like one big uh just conflict that really kind of came up or, or like threw them off their balance uh more so than any of the actual atrocities going on around them but like it was interesting that like you know she seemed perfectly content to continue living that life and that was you know seeing her just like seem kind of indifferent to him coming home when he says he's going to when they got on the phone i think that spoke a lot too as to like what her priorities were and i thought it was a pretty good character moment on which to leave her um Elijah, I, I last thing I want to ask you about, I guess, if we want to circle back to Tech Corner for just a second, um, you, you, you talked about it earlier a little bit with um the way they shot it. I heard that the, they they I heard I read some other stuff too about how they were pretty um, deliberate with where they placed the cameras and how they filmed portions of it, like you know more um, reality TV Big Brother style, which is how they were able to kind of um, 
observed different people at different moments uh, from certain angles in the house. Uh, you made the point about them not having any close-ups. I'm wondering uh, what you felt the intention was behind that one choice right there. And just anything else you wanted to kind of talk about on tech corner. Cause that was one thing that you brought up that like, that did make sense to me as far as like, Hey, they made a very particular choice there with respect to the characters, not to show them in a certain way. Uh, what did you feel that they accomplished by that? And whether is there anything else that you really like wanted to shout out with respect to any other, th- anything else that Glazer uh, accomplished technically? Yeah. I, so my my feeling right is that the way that it was filmed this kind of you know you said big brother i think that was a phrase that glazer used right like, uh, okay big brother yeah, I, I didn't know if that came from him or just to someone big, else and yeah. big brother nazi house <laughs> um, was glazer's de- you know kind of defining it but i think what it accomplishes right the lack of close-ups in, in a lot of scenarios um the kind of detached nature the sort of it, the overall perspective that that very much forces the viewer to consider like I am viewing something right is because Zone of Interest is actually two movies. It's the movie that's written down in the screenplay, and then it's the movie that we see. Uh, and they're two very different films. the The screenplay and the story of the film is a domestic drama about a man who is struggling with a promotion and, you know, not wanting to move away from his family. The actual movie that we're watching is one about perspective and about forcing you as the viewer to reckon with where these people are and what they're taking part in. And that is the... the I think that probably the most overall you know and that and that plays into every aspect it's the way it's filmed the audio right the soundscape it's about showing us the second film while the first film is occurring the first film is playing out before us this this family is going through this domestic drama and you know we see all these kind of moments from that story but the way that we see them is in such a way that is so removed from the language of what that film that we would expect to see because what we're actually seeing is the second film. We're actually seeing the the, the perspective of us as an audience witnessing these events. Um, a, a domestic drama about a man who is struggling with a promotion would have lots of close-ups. It, it'd look a lot more like a marriage story, you know, just pulling something out of my hat. Right. And I, and like, I guess, and I guess it would also just humanize them in a way that's not really necessary for what the movie's trying to do. Right. Because that's not the point of the mm-hmm. second movie. The second movie, the one that we're actually watching is not about humanizing them. It's specifically about showing us how little humanity they actually had. <laughs> um, and so, you know, from a technical perspective, I think that was what was being accomplished with that. There's very few breaks from that. And when they do occur, they are notable, right? Obviously, there's the running visual uh, kind of break from the way the rest of the film works of all of the infrared uh, night vision uh, cutaways where we see kind of an unnamed uh, young Polish girl who I think it's implied works at the the, the house. Um, That's what I kind of gathered, but they didn't really spell that out for us. She leaves, um, you know, at at the end of the day, every 
you know, Day takes a bag of apples with her from the house and hides the apples all around the camp, basically, you know, the exterior and, and outside portions of the camp. So ostensibly the, the prisoners during the day, uh, you know, can find those while they're working and be able to actually eat. And that is a moment of humanity that's presented quite literally in visual inverse. <laughs> it is, you know, it is, it's like watching a photo negative. The colors are completely flipped. Um, everything about those scenes feels different. Um, and obviously, really, the only true emotional, like, beating heart moment of the film is when the girl finds the um, music, the mm. sheet music that's been written out and hidden um under a under a wheelbarrow or something uh and she takes it home and plays the music and there is an an incredibly powerful moment where the words uh of the script of the music are not sung uh they are shown as subtitle text while uh while the girl plays piano and i think that was uh it's just it's completely different than the rest of the film it's the it is it's a moment of utter humanity in the face of everything else uh terrible occurring um and while it may not be like stylistically uniform with the rest of the film i think it was it was good at showing uh what it was you know kind of intended to show Fred, so. can I ask, Fred, can i ask you a dumb question before we wrap up no such thing as uh, well, you, so you this movie is in German. You actually can speak German. We can't. Uh, do you think there's anything I missed yeah. by not? But do you think that? Do you think you get anything extra out of this? Like it is a dumb question, but I'm not a bilingual person. Like what? Like it's probably not super often you get to watch like German movies in a movie theater. You know, I'm wondering like what? what, what is, is there anything? No, is there anything like about you get out of that experience that like I wouldn't that I wouldn't even necessarily think about and what what that's like for you and do you think there's something that you're get, getting out of just being able to beyond just listening your native tongue that maybe you're picking up on that I'm not picking up on yeah first of all huge first world problem obviously considering just the scope of what we've been discussing <laughs> sure. it's super annoying when you speak a language fluently and you have to read subtitles in a different language underneath it <laughs> because the translation is never going to match up perfectly so instead of focusing on the spoken words, you're going to look at the subtitles and be like, but wait, that's not like exactly what they Are you able to like block that out at a certain point? To an extent, yeah, but I will still kind of tempt it because <laughs> I mean, it's a big screen right in front of you. So it's really hard to miss the subtitles at the bottom. So I was still kind of reading along in English, but it is very distracting for me to do it that way because if I've been at home, I wouldn't have watched it with English subtitles. Right. Um, I will say, and you're always going to run into this issue when you have to read subtitles the spoken word in the original language that it's shot in is always going to be a little bit more fluid in the sense that it just sounds a little bit more authentic like how people sort of in german would talk to each other and i would argue maybe the sort of absurdity of some of the lines just the callousness might have even been a little bit more extreme in the original german because the way they say it is just so casual, like the way like Germans would talk to each other about how their day has been, um, that it just kind of hits on a level that maybe isn't conveyed quite as strongly via subtitles. Mm. But again, that's just me speculating. Um, but I just felt like some of the lines um, felt 
I might have gotten a more visceral reaction out of than people around me uh, by understanding the words they were saying as opposed to having to read the subtitles that captured the translation well, but not 100%. I guess you might have gotten a little bit of that in Anatomy of a Fall, too, because she goes into German a few times when mm -hmm. she's speaking with her son, correct? In that, I guess, and wanting to like communicate with him without what, what in the presence of the French people, you know. And I'd yeah, say, yeah, there's very little German in the movie, though. I, I will say, and I, I mean, this is a total tangent. I just watched that, that movie today, mm -hmm. and would that have even qualified for the foreign language Oscar? Because mm -hmm. it's really 50% of it in French. Like there was so much English in that movie, I really didn't know that it was actually. Uh... No, I think I think I, I would have. It's just France didn't submit it, if I remember correctly. They didn't right? submit it. That's right. Yeah. But I was really curious because there was a lot of English in that movie. Uh, but yeah, there was very little German in Anatomy of a Fall. Um, so yeah, that wasn't as much of an issue. Um, and I don't speak French, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was just curious. What, I was curious what your experiences was like with that because I, I I guess we did uh, we did I, I didn't even think to really ask about that when we talked about All Quiet on the Western Front. I, I'd forgotten when we talked about you doing this episode that we actually had talked about a movie that was in German that would have been in German before, but like we just we didn't really talk about that with All Quiet on the Western. Right, but that was at home via Netflix, and I didn't have to turn on the English right, subtitles. Right, 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 right. I think right, I might right. have actually turned on the German subtitles because I'm just mm -hmm. at a point right now where the sound mixing is so bad in most movies <laughs> that it's a lot easier to read along at the bottom, regardless oh. of what the language is. But, uh, yeah, this is the very this is I think the very first time I've ever seen a German movie at a movie theater with English subtitles. This might mm -hmm. have been the first for me. Interesting. Um, well, Fred, any, besides that, because I, I was just I want something I want to ask you out of curiosity, but is there anything else about uh, ab ab about uh, the zone of interest that we didn't already highlight that you wanted to shout out before you wrapped it up? No, I'm just grateful that I got to see it on the big screen and that there are movie theaters like uh, the Bell Court here in Nashville that are showing it because I it's not really getting any other showings here in Nashville. Yeah, you um, mentioned that you actually had a pretty full theater, a relatively full theater, correct? And which is cool. I mean, yeah, I guess you were yeah. seeing it in an arty theater and people are more likely to seek something like that out there. Uh, and I know, Elijah, we, I mean, we talked about, it, I think, even a couple of times on the podcast where you were just like waiting and waiting for it to get to Atlanta and it was just taking forever to, to go wide. But like, I think it's actually going a little wider this week. I don't know, not, not that it's going to go get make gangbusters money or anything like that. I I, I saw it on a, um, I saw it last night, a Tuesday, 8 p.m. showing in Palm Beach Gardens and it was um it was at least three quarters full and I was just like looking at movie time so I was curious like if I was going to try and see something tomorrow night or not because just like I got I got other plans on Sunday night it's like maybe I need to see a movie that's coming out there's not a lot of new stuff coming out and in that in fact Zone of Interest is getting to even more theaters I told our friend Adam that I, I really thought he needed to see it uh, I just I know I know Adam and I know that Adam would enjoy this he's an AMC member but like uh it's just not coming to the the one AMC that's within uh, our neighbor our, when there's none in Palm Beach County anymore we don't need to hear me cry about that anymore but there's only there's there's one in, there, there's one in Broward County that he's still a member at and it's just not there but there's it's at another small theater near him like it it was only at the one CMX that I saw it I've seen it at twice now for the first week it was out but it's like expanding to multiple other theaters in Palm Beach County including one that is like kind of like a a local indie-ish theater where the tickets are like always like seven dollars. It's around the corner from Adam's house, so I think he's going to have a good chance to see it this weekend. It's, it's so I'm just glad it is getting out more and it's expanding at least somewhat. And so I think more people are finding it and going to get to have that experience because, like, you know, you don't want to tell people too much about what's going on in it. I think it's uh, better to go in knowing. I mean, even if you kind of know the conceit, I think it is better to go in not knowing too much about exactly how they're pulling it off. But like, you want to? I was like Adam. I think I think you're going to miss something if you don't have this experience in theaters purely for the sound, but I didn't tell them anything else. So it's, I think it is cool that it seems like at least anecdotally um, 
people are starting to find this movie uh, in bigger numbers and uh, not waiting for it to just come to streaming. And it, I think it's a good thing too, that like the Oscars are just, they kept them later. You know, I think like um, before COVID, like they were always a little earlier. They weren't quite this like late March and they're keeping it that way. And it's, even if we have to wait a little longer to get the stuff like this, it gives everyone a chance to see stuff like this yeah. in theaters before the Oscars, which is good. Um, Elijah, anything else about the zone of interest that you wanted to mention before we finished up? I think we about covered it. And I think, uh, yeah, I agree. You should get out and uh, see it. I was going to make a note about uh, Christian Friedel, but I'll save that actually for my, uh, for my suggestion. Sure. My- I guess we didn't really talk about him. Uh, so, I mean, I think, I mean, it's easy to like, you know, get caught I, up I in this and all. Yeah. That, that's all. That's all I had to say. <laughs> He's going to be in the next season of White Lotus. I think I read. So that's kind of exciting. Oh, I think I did see that somewhere. Uh, so, you know, interesting to see how, It'll be interesting to see how they uh, how they utilize him. Um, but yeah, uh, Fred, any, before you wrap up, anything you want to recommend to the listeners you've been watching recently? Yeah, so this isn't so much a recommendation for something I have seen yet, but I definitely mm. will. Uh, the uh, German Oscar nominee, uh, the actual one submitted by Germany, The Teacher's Lounge. Mm. Um, that one is coming out next week. Uh, at the very least, we're getting it here in Nashville at the Belcourt. So I assume it's going to hit some theaters uh, on February 9th, uh, like it is here. Uh, like I said, I haven't had a chance to see it yet. Obviously, it's not out yet, but uh, I would encourage people to potentially check that out uh, if they get the opportunity. Um, other than that, I've been spending a good amount of time uh, catching up on my TV shows. Uh, the one that I want to point people to because they might not have heard about it or may not really have access to it is Miss You Spade, uh, starring uh, one of my favorite underrated actors uh, of this century, which is Clive Owen. Mm. Uh, and he's playing uh, Detective Sam Spade, actually, uh, famously uh, portrayed by Humphrey Bogart in the Maltese Falcon uh, in the 1950s. Uh, and this version of Sam Spade is semi-retired, living in France, um, widowed, and there's a brutal murder where he obviously has to uh, um, put his uh, considerable uh, investigative skills to good use in the small town. Uh, and it's really well done, very well written. Uh it's uh, written and directed by uh, Scott Frank, uh, who most people will probably know from doing The Queen's Gambit. Um, and Owen's doing a really good job channeling that sort of noir, cynical uh, American detective personality, which is great since he's British. Um, I'm really glad that he's found a way to uh, do uh, such a good um, impression of what characters in that era were usually depicted as. So I would definitely recommend people uh, check that out. I'm Embarrassed to admit that I don't actually know where it's streaming. Uh, I just bought a season pass on uh, Apple mm. uh, to go watch it. It was like 10 bucks, I think. So it's six episodes. Would definitely recommend people check that out, especially if they like broody, noir detective types. Uh, and since we discussed Ferrari on the last part, I will just point people to February 8th, which is next week. That is when Tokyo Vice is coming back for a second season on HBO Max. Very excited for that. So hopefully... Uh, if you haven't yet, go check out the first season and then uh, be ready to go when the second season comes out next week. I appreciate the reminder on that. Since you guys both recommended that so highly, even though I didn't love uh, Ferrari, I uh, I will I will give that a shot because I'm kind of like this. We're not quite at a point where any kind of re- returning shows are really coming back yet that are going to you know occupy my time so i do need something else to like check out i'm like running out of stuff to watch while i'm working out so uh that might be that uh elijah anything else you've been watching recently that you'd like to shout out before we wrap up the pod 
so this is not recent, but um, yeah, it can be old I, uh, as always. so, so I have, uh, I actually have a list on Letterboxd that I maintain um, that is kind of uh, my essential cinema on the Shoah, on the Holocaust. Um, it's uh, like 45, 50 films right now. Um, there's a lot that uh, I could mention, um, but I actually want to specifically mention two films because I think they're films that, uh, you know, kind of, similarly to the one that we discussed tonight um kind of approach the topic from a different perspective um the first one is uh, a film from 1990 called uh, das schreckliche mädchen or the nasty girl uh directed by michael verhoven uh not related to paul uh, <laughs> i was about um, to ask <laughs> no just uh just the last name last name um and it is a film about uh, a young girl um, who uh, wins a, a scholastic prize and uh, gets to, uh, you know, get basically gets um, funded to write a, like a research paper of her own, you know, a topic of her own choosing. Um, and she chooses to write about the Nazi history of her small idyllic Bavarian uh, hometown. Mm -hmm. um, and, it's based on a true story uh, and basically, you know, you will find as you watch the film, the townspeople do not like that she's, uh, that she's trawling all this up, um, all this history that I think a lot of people would have preferred to forget. In a similar vein, another film kind of going from the other direction that I want to wa uh, recommend is uh, uh, Die Weisse Band, uh, The White Ribbon. Oh, uh, Hanukkah. Which is a Mikhail Hanukkah film from uh, 2009, uh, thereabouts, starring Christian Friedel. Uh, hmm. uh, I I I watched that. I rewatched this uh, with Haley a few months ago now, I guess, because I think I expected Zone of Interest to be coming out sooner. Um, but all that I really knew at the time was that Christian Friedel was in Zone of Interest, um, and he plays a very different, much nicer character um, <laughs> in, in The White Ribbon. But The White Ribbon is a film uh, about things going amiss uh, in a small German town uh, in the in the year leading up to World War One, um, and essentially, you know, kind of viewing how there are these seeds of proto-fascistic ideology uh, being planted, you know, even as far back as 1916, 1915, you know, or 1914, whenever that was, God, um, you know, in that, in that early, early time um, and how, uh, you know, there's, there's sort of a contiguousness to this all. Um, and so two films I want to recommend that are not actually about the Holocaust directly, but are about the influences leading to it and how, uh, you know, kind of in in the rear view, it is uh, objects are closer than they appear. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I think that's uh, that those two films kind of investigate that in a way that I think works really well with Zone of Interest. Yeah, I, I appreciate that recommendation. I, I, one of the partners at my law firm, uh, she, I don't work with her because she works in a different group, but like she, she, I talked to her about, her name's Antonia. We talk about movies a lot. 
and she's always tried to get me to watch Hanukkah movies, and I just haven't watched any before. I don't. I maybe I maybe one. I'm not sure, but I the White Ribbon's like the one that she really highlighted. So I'm curious to check it out. You're actually followed these amount of people on Letterbox, and I just just look at it up as you were talking. You're like the only one person I follow that actually ever wrote anything about it on Letterbox. Which, so I mean, it seems like probably a little bit underseen. Um, I don't have a lot to recommend. Actually, I was looking at my what what I've haven't logged, but have typed out of my ongoing word document and there's not a ton that i had actually really liked that i'm like oh people need to watch uh so that's why i was kind of thinking back when i was talking earlier about this other content that was at least uh shared that, that at least was adjacent to uh the zone of interest and i wanted to shout out a movie that i don't know when people are going to really have a chance to see i could send you guys a link for it because it was one i watched as part of my uh responsibilities helping screen movies for the palm beach jewish film festival it's called delegation by an, an israeli director named asaf saban and uh, it's a it's it's it was an Israel and Poland co-production, um, kind of about a group of forty teenagers from uh, Israel that uh, that go to like a tour of concentration camps and they fly, like fly into Warsaw and they spend time at Auschwitz and at least one other concentration camp and you know these kids are like it's like I just thought it was really interesting like it felt like it captured the essence of being like on a high school trip and how these kids are all kind of dealing with their own like you know teenage problems and stuff like that while also like kind of reckoning with what it means to be going on a trip to places like Auschwitz. Uh, and one of the kids, grandpa is a Holocaust survivor and is on the trip too. So it's, it's an interesting wrinkle. Uh, and I just a really, uh, I, I just, I thought it was really well done and interesting while not just being, not quite feeling exactly like homework, what you might, like you might expect some Holocaust movies to be, cause you're just dealing with like a different crew of characters than you normally do in a Holocaust movie. And I thought the kids were really well, the kids did a really good job of acting in the movie, did, did a good job of treating the subject matter with the seriousness it deserved, even if it was also dealing with some, you know, petty intra teen group squabbles and whatnot at the same time. Uh, so yeah, it's called delegation. Uh, it's like playing at like the New York film festival too, right now, I think maybe, I don't know. So it just kind of, uh, I, I like, or maybe it was on the, um, or did it pop up on like a Lincoln center website when I Googled it or something like that. So, uh, yeah, I don't know exactly, uh, you know, film at the Lincoln center. Yeah. So maybe it's like playing at the Lincoln center as part of like, like a New York premiere of something or another. So it's like slowly coming out, but like there was supposed to be some kind of like, yeah, there's some, Oh no, the New York Jewish film festival. So they already got it. And I don't think we selected it for the Palm Beach Jewish film festival, even though it was like my, my favorite movie I watched for that. So it is like kind of rolling out slowly, Though, if anyone actually really cares to see the movie, I can probably get you a link. So uh, I would just say uh, watch Delegation if you have the chance to when it comes out, if you uh, think this subject matter is something that interests you. Okay, Fred, uh, where can people find you on Letterboxd? Uh, give me 20 seconds to make another quick recommendation. Yes. Uh, Christian Friedel, um, Netflix, uh, German TV show called Babylon Berlin, uh, which is really good, uh, shot and filmed uh, in Germany. Uh, he plays a pretty big role in that. It's set uh, during the 1920s in Berlin as the Nazis are slowly coming to power and anti-Semitism is on the rise. Uh, he has a pretty big role in that. Uh, really nicely uh, done show. Really interesting historically. Great production values. It's on Netflix. Highly recommended. Is he playing um, a Nazi in that or is he playing like a German citizen that's there? Uh, he's, you know, he's playing a good guy in that. I oh, okay. Good for him. Yeah. <laughs> no, don't want, don't want this guy getting typecast. I was just curious. <laughs> no, no, he's not an evil guy in that show. Uh, really nice guy, actually. Um, been a while since uh, another season came out, which is annoying because I think the fourth season already aired in Germany, but they haven't put it on Netflix yet. Mm. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but yes, Letterboxd. Sorry, got derailed there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, please do find me on Letterboxd. Uh, you can just type in my name, Fred Corp. Uh, my username is uh, Frederick0702. 
uh, please give me a follow. Yeah, Fred is uh, close to rounding out all of the Oscar nominations, uh, Oscar nominated Best Picture movies. So you can catch his thoughts on that. I've now seen all of them. Zone of Interest is my last one, but I'm, you know, uh, more caught up on Letterboxd than I was, you know, three months ago, but still got a little bit to go. Uh, Elijah, it's Mr. Smith Goes to FL on Letterboxd, correct? Yes, Elijah Howard, Mr. Smith Goes to FL. Uh, also, if you search on Letterboxd, uh, Essential Cinema, colon, the Shoah, S H O A H. Uh, you'll, my list, I think, is the only one that comes up. So, ah, there you go. All right. As usual, I'm Josh Turnervoy on Twitter and Letterboxd, J O S H J U R N O V O Y. And the podcast Twitter is at Real Movie Pod. Podcast uh, emails realmoviepod at gmail.com. I'm really going to start saying less about what's coming up next on the podcast because I've had a lot of scheduling issues recently and some of the stuff just hasn't come together. Uh, though I do have like my next, uh, my ne- my next recording is like set in stone, like as opposed to just me, like in theory, knowing who's doing a movie. So I'm going to, we should have an episode on all of us strangers with uh, our friends, Ben and uh, John coming up at some point in the next week or two. So uh, looking forward to that. Thanks again to Elijah and Fred for joining me. Uh, they might be coming back at least one more time each before the end of the, before the end of this award season, if not, you know, at the very latest for our uh, year end uh, festivities. So uh, look forward to uh, conferring again with them on those things. I want to thank all of you for listening as well, and we'll see you next time.